And we're going to start today's session with Paolo Rosado, founder and CEO of OutSystems, joining us from Portugal. Paolo, would you please unmute your line? That's Romana. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Paolo. It's great to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure. So, Paolo, we spoke a little while ago, and uh, I was really impressed by the story that you shared with me, and then I wanted to, you know, invite you to a, a video discussion here. You have built one of the very few global enterprise software companies out of Europe. For whatever reason, Europe has not been a productive um, source of global software companies. Tell us what you do, what customers you sell to, etc. Well, we are in a we are in a, in the business of application development. We have a, what today is called a rapid application delivery platform for the enterprise, and we sell into IT departments for very large scale um, installations. We typically compete with uh, with normal application development processes, frameworks, and tools like Java Development, .NET Development. What we provide, and uh, that's our fundamental source of growth today, is uh, we enable an enterprise to deliver in about 16 weeks what otherwise would take them about uh, 20 months. Mm -hmm. um, and so. <clears throat> Not only we compress the time to market, but we also provide a tremendous increase in productivity where teams of about 25 people can, uh, I mean a team of about five people can do the work of about 20, 25 people. And so it's a high productivity uh, play. Um, it's a fast time to market play. Uh, and more than that, the applications that are built uh, using the OutSystems platform are evergreen, so they never become legacy. They're constantly um, ready and able to change very, very quickly. We end up by being used <clears throat> inside uh, very large enterprises, actually, to address all application needs that the enterprise cannot purchase or rent out of the web. So what are some examples? Yeah, um, actually, I have so many. I have such a <laughs> wide list that I'm just going to pick some of them. Uh, so, for instance, uh, in uh, in in companies that do credit, uh, loan originations is a very uh, the workflows, the portals, uh, the interactions, the journey with the customers are such uh, um, are so innovative, so different from company to company. It's typically done. Uh, that that's one big area uh, for us. Um, AXA, for instance, uh, in UK, they they completely redesign the the journey of um, of customers when they need to submit a claim mm -hmm. using a combination of mobile applications, portals, and redesigning the workflows internally. Very fast project, all done on our systems. Uh, Georgia Tech has automated all the laboratory laboratory management and uh, asset management. We have a company, for instance, uh, one of the largest uh, oil and gas storage companies in the world. They operate close to 80 terminals, and uh, they're redesigning the full system of managing the oil tankers, the trucks, 
the grids and the reserve, uh, uh, the storage, the oil storage, using an out system system, just because there's no one, there's nothing that can uh, they, they can buy, and it's very difficult to build that using traditional uh, coding. And so those are just examples. I can give you another 2,000. So take us back to when you started. You know, our program is full of entrepreneurs who are very early stage, starting out, or are you know doing maybe a couple of some hundred thousand dollars in revenue. In some cases, maybe a couple of million dollars in revenue. But that, you know, it's, it's more the early part of your journey that I want to start with. Um, how did you get this company off the ground from Portugal? How did the beginning of the story start? Well, the, so we first started with um, with an idea, right? This uh, this notion that uh, this notion that uh, IT IT projects, uh, IT software, uh, or the software that you build inside the enterprises, um, and the processes that we, that you use are fundamentally flawed. Um, most projects fail; they take too long. The applications that you build become legacy almost instantaneously. You cannot change them. They're always inadequate. And there is actually very bad karma between IT departments and the business users. They don't like each other. ITs don't like to be constantly reminded they are inadequate, that what they deliver is not enough. And business users uh, actually like to have their problems solved. And so when we saw... Uh, My previous life before My previous life. Somebody is echoing into the call. My previous life before this, we uh, I actually participated in a lot of these failed projects. And so uh, the, the the fundamental idea when we we looked into the anatomy of uh, of software development inside the enterprise, we realized that as uh, as we entered the internet age and then the mobile age, a lot of the systems that uh, that are built inside the enterprise that are unique, they are very, very difficult to pin down uh, from the onset, very difficult to write requirements about it. They change very quickly, and they change during the the build of these systems. And, um, and so what we, what we did was fundamentally examine the anatomy of software change and lower dramatically the cost of that change. And by doing that, we created a completely different Platform in 2001, we introduced things like um, um, uh, we introduced a model-driven approach. So we have a low, what's called today a low-code uh, approach, where we minimize coding because that dramatically uh, that's one of the aspects of decreasing the cost of change and uh, increasing productivity. But we also introduced DevOps in 2002, the old notion of uh, integrating the full cycle between development deployment, staging, and analyzing an application by mm -hmm. compressing the cycle of, uh, of the, the cycle of change or the, or the life cycle of, uh, of software, which today with continuous delivery and a lot of these buzzwords is now becoming a standard, but in 2002 it was pretty unique. So, but how did you, uh, in 2001, 2002, when you were, you were starting this company out of Portugal, you obviously needed some early adopter customers who understood your language, who understood what you were talking about and so forth. How did you find those customers from Portugal? Well, uh, we actually, uh, we wanted to build an international company from, from day one. And so mm -hmm. 
our second customer was actually a Dutch customer, and our third was a Spanish customer. So mm -hmm. we closed off this customer, and we built our product around these three um, marquee customers. Um, we already knew more or less what we wanted to fix, what we wanted to solve. We just needed to understand exactly what was the minimum valuable product at the time. And, and basically, that's, uh, that, that's what we did. Now, the way we acquired these customers is the very old way, connections, network, a lot of traveling, um, mm -hmm. and, and actually just trust, uh, building up trust with, with these guys during the process uh, to a point where when they looked into it, they saw that they could solve actually previously unsolved problems with the, with the product. From that point on, we just took off. How many people, how many customers or prospects did you have to talk to to find these three marquee customers, early adopter customers? Actually, um, actually, the first one was fairly easy. We almost created the company on the premise that we were going to use them as one of our first references. Okay, that's but, useful. Uh, yeah, that's. But but you, you when you when you are in missionary stages, uh, right at the beginning, you go into you're probably going to stages of talking with 80, 100 people to just get one, uh, one reference. So yeah. it's a very, as as we all know, it's a very painful process. That's what I wanted to highlight is uh, if people have illusions that it's going to be easy, it's not going to be easy. Most of the time, you have to really play the numbers game and 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 find those, you know, diamonds yeah. in the rough who are going to want to play ball with you. It, of course, it helps if you have a. It helps if you if you have a previous reputation and you are trustworthy, right? So if they did business yeah. with you before, um, and and you come there with some harebrained idea like the ones we were presenting them at the time, they look into us and say, "You're you're you're not crazy, in spite the idea looks crazy." So I'm going to give it a try. So that those networks are very very important in the beginning. And the other thing that you did, if I remember from your story, is that you raised about a million euro in angel financing. How did you manage to do that? Who were the angels in Portugal at that time in 2001? It was actually not angel. It was a it, it was a, a CVC. A CVC, um, okay. So it was a venture capital firm from uh, from Holland. Mm -hmm. um, again, a previous acquaintance. I did a lot of pitches, but at the time people wanted me to. Most of the, the ones that were interested in the idea and the company wanted us to move engineering to London, um, mm -hmm. to Northern Europe. That was very expensive. I, I needed three million instead of one, so I didn't want to do that. Um, and these guys actually bet on us at, um, at the time, so we invested one million. And that was one of the crucial elements of, uh, of actually uh, taking these type of companies off the ground because it allowed us to not fall into the trap of creating extremely customized versions for the first customers because we were financially independent from the customers themselves. Mm -hmm. So that one million was very uh, very important to actually build a real product company mm -hmm. at the time. And um, what were the stages of evolution? So uh, you are quite far along. Of course, we are now sitting 14 years later and discussing your business, um, how have you scaled the company, what were some of the key inflection points in your business? And um, it sounds like you, right from the beginning, you were working with not just 
Portuguese customers, but you were working with Dutch customers, Spanish customers, and so forth. But at what point did that become uh, you know, a global business? What has been the, the strategy to acquire global customers, et cetera? So um, I think we've, had, we've always been um, relatively opportunistic. I would like to say that we were very strategic. But we actually pinned down the Benelux as one of our uh, fundamental growth areas. Okay. And of course, because of our networks, uh, Portugal was also uh, also important. And then, of course, the United States, where we came relatively early in 2007. Um, and from that point on, we, it was just a hard uh, situation of building up references until we hit enough critical mass of those references where through word of mouth, where we could put other type of mechanisms like partnerships, uh, partners are very important to us today, um, where we can build up an inbound marketing engine based on uh, references and case studies and content. And, uh, and then we, there were several inflection points, I would say. One, one of the inflection points where, was when we switched from a perpetual license model to a subscription model. Extremely mm -hmm. painful. It took us four years to recover the revenue we had. To get it uh, yeah, so we flattened our revenue for four years. Um, that process was very, very. It's now, it's now fantastic because we have uh, a tremendous. We have almost no churn. We have a tremendous amount of uh, of, uh, of subscription revenue, and uh, and, and so it, the, the company now is much, much easier to predict and than manage. But at the time, it was very painful. And we only did it because we're very, very, uh, very good with cash and cash management. We also had uh, um, we had just received uh, seven million euro uh, funding, which allowed us to stretch our working capital. So we managed. That was a very important time when we did something that was that was not obvious, but uh, but it was what what ended up by creating a company that has a cloud financial model today. What were um, so the period where you were focusing on Benelux and Portugal, um, the let's say maybe the early three or four years, were you selling direct? I was, um, yeah, we're selling we're selling direct. We always had partners. Almost from uh, from the moment we acquired two or three customers in the, in the country, we started having partners. Those partners then bring us leads and. Uh, but we, um, our model with the new territory has been to, uh, whenever we we open up uh, a particular country, we always set up a minimal, what we call a minimal team or SWAT team. Mm -hmm. and, and there is a process that we follow up, up to this point. We, we try to acquire a series of references. Usually the country already has some references before mm -hmm. we enter. Um, we sometimes we have a vertical play. Uh, it depends really on, on on the country, and and then we usually align two or three partners, and then we start working the territory, and from that point on we we start putting all our mechanisms of scale, and, and we just let the territory grow. There's not a lot of rocket science here. There's just a mixture of uh, of a lot of things we do, um, but the the big um, I think the big um, uh, the big takeout is that it's possible to actually scale products uh, as complex as the OutSystems platform. The OutSystems platform is a tremendously complex product. It's a product yeah. that has a very simple value prop, 
but that does a, to do that simple value prop, it actually has a huge amount of functions. So our evaluation process, especially in, in Global 2000, is, is actually lengthy. It's, uh, we, we, we've been able to compress it to about five months, four to five months. Mm -hmm. Still sometimes we have 25 people evaluating several portions of the product. It's very, very mm -hmm. complete and, uh, and very strategic uh, type of beast that enters inside the organization. So people uh, go through a lot of checklists to make sure that uh, it does what it, it promises to do. So with, the, with that kind of a long sales cycle, what has been uh, your funding strategy? You said you raised a million at the beginning from a seed fund. You raised a seven million round somewhere in between. What, what have been the points at which you injected capital to manage that growth? We actually, you know what, we've, um, since, uh, since that one million where we recovered from the red and we became profitable, we've never stopped being profitable. So the seven million actually was just uh, working cash, working capital when we moved to a subscription model because we needed that money to sustain us then. And what happened about two, three years ago was that we, we got a, a really big inflection, inflection point in the market where, because of mobile, these mm -hmm. type of platforms, these uh, rapid application delivery platforms became of the essence. Because mm -hmm. mobile projects that involve mobile interfaces today need to be delivered in weeks. So yeah. suddenly something that was a nice to have for the web became a must-have when mobile entered. And that, that was the catalyst moment that has been sustaining now our hyper-growth. Um, so so the, this, uh, this inflection point of enterprise adoption of mobile apps in a significant way, would you pin that to 2012? Yes, yes. More or less 2012 to 2013, yes. That's when the pressure of the business for IT to rebuild basically the journeys with the customers. That's what's happening, uh, what happened with mobile is that uh, suddenly there is a, a tremendous pressure, a wide pressure across almost every industry to mm -hmm. go and redesign the engagement process with customers and partners mm -hmm. based on digital systems. Even companies that were fairly conserva conservative are now uh, realizing they need to deploy 50 mobile apps and redesign the seven or eight portals they mm -hmm. have today. And so that process of redesign no longer can, uh, they can no longer do it in two years projects. So the projects yeah. have compressed to weeks. There are mm -hmm. many. Everyone is trying to do it. And the skill set problem is tremendous with mobile. No one knows, understands all the skills that are now coming to be able to build these full stack apps. And so our systems then comes to, it's, 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 a, it's a great opportunity for us because we do all of that, uh, but we do it with the people that you have. You don't need to, yeah. to hire new people. And we do it with, uh, with five, uh, five to seven to sometimes ten times productivity uh, factors in terms yeah. of time to market and number of people. So, yeah. And what is the competition? How do you position, how do you differentiate, and how do you win these Global 2000 accounts? Is there a U.S. competitor? How do you compete in these deals? Yeah, well, uh, a lot of competition is actually status quo. So, mm -hmm. 
So we've, um, uh, we, we have a lot of competition from traditional uh, frameworks, coding languages. Um, and our, our, our advantage here is when, when we actually need to deliver on time, we do it high quality, then there is really no alternative. In our space, though, there is a, the category is forming, and, and there's, there's a bunch of players. Yeah, um, there are. The biggest one is yeah. The biggest one is is probably uh, Force.com, the the, the yeah. development branch of Salesforce. Sure. That's where we see that's that's where we see the most in the in the territory. Fortunately, we win consistently against them. So that's how do you big. win? What's the dif um, what is the differentiating uh, positioning for against Force.com? You know, this type of products it's it's interesting because this type of products are are very hard on engineering teams because the value proposition can only be delivered if you are able to be very complete in terms of uh, the aspects of the application that you deliver. You need to be very good at integrating. These applications tend to integrate with many, many systems. You need to be very good at uh, mobile uh, UI very sophisticated mobile user interfaces, for instance, web user interfaces. You need to have workflow uh, capabilities. You need to have business logic security. And then you need to be able to support the full life cycle of these applications. So what this, this provides a, uh, almost like a combination of features that creates a tremendously large product. But the advantage that we have is I think we've had We've been having a very good vision in terms of uh, in terms of uh, product features, and we've been around already for many years. Mm -hmm. So this is the type of product that's very difficult to rebuild in five years. It's it's very big. So we have tremendous technical barriers, and when we go into POCs, and when customers do bake-offs, we typically win almost 100% of all the bake-offs. So. Uh, where um, what is what are some of the positioning points where you beat Salesforce.com? Well, um, first of all, it's the lock-in. I think the lock-in is probably the most uh, the toughest mm -hmm. one. The moment you build one of these big apps, if if you go into the Salesforce uh, platform, uh, it's 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 a platform. It's a very expensive platform, and if you lock in, you never get out of that. Uh, it's your costs, your subscription costs are just going to uh, to increase. We have a no lock in. Uh, uh, we have a no lock in warranty in our contracts, where um, if you if you if if you at a certain point decided that you're tired of us, you can basically just peel off the platform and continue with the application that you built in traditional, using traditional technologies. So we provide that, uh, that mm -hmm. value out of the box. That's, that's a very cherished thing. But actually, besides that, it's just pure functionality. For instance, the DevOps capabilities that we provide are an order of magnitude superior to what Salesforce does. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not their business. They're just doing it to enhance the CRM, so. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, the, so they've never really uh, invested uh, into making sure they are the competitive product against companies like ours. Very interesting. So, folks, the reason I'm, I double-click down with Paolo on this point is to show you how to position a product. And uh, you can actually win by positioning a product and developing functionality that can bump very, very large competitors, but you have to be very precise in how to do that, and, and that's 
something that That's I would exactly like you it. to learn. <laughs> so exactly last it. question, Paolo. Um, what is your observation about the startup scene where you are? And both, I know in Portugal there is a startup scene that has developed, and, and also from a European standpoint, what are you seeing? What is the evolution? You've been in the business for a long time. Um, I think the Europeans, the, the, the Europeans have a traditional, uh, a fundamental way of looking into new businesses that's, that's very different from, from the U.S., from the U.S. mentality. Um, in the U.S., you look into the, the, the system is, is the, the natural selection of the companies that survive and fail is a process that happens much, much faster. Mm -hmm. And so um, what, what this means is that in the end, as a system, it's a much more um, efficient system than the European system where companies that are probably not going, ever going to make it, they linger for much longer. The entrepreneurs mm -hmm. have much more perseverance. They, they stay around for a longer time. And a lot of these companies never make it. But the ones that make, appear, like the case of all systems, for instance, appear with, with, uh, with assets that are very difficult to beat by an American mentality. Like, for instance, a product that takes eight years to complete is, in, is out of the, the reach of, um, of a U.S. competitor, which typically have a timeout of five years, um, uh, of five years where in three to five years they have to grow and they have to prove that uh, they deserve the next round of funding. Um, and so this this, uh, this this model, together with the fact that, for instance, in Portugal and all southern Europe, uh, with the with the big crisis, the, the state crisis that happened several years ago, uh, the markets internally have uh, have shrinked uh, dramatically. Which means that a lot of uh, there's a tremendous amount of talent, engineering talent. Um, for instance, in Portugal, everyone speaks English. Everyone travels, so it's, a, it's an extremely cosmopolitan uh, country with top engineers. What that means is fundamentally a lot of startups today. And startups that from day one, their primary markets are no longer in Europe. They are in the United States. They are in China. And so uh, what we see today is a, is, is a burst of activity in startups that, have, uh, that follow a little bit the Israeli model, where they have uh, development centers in uh, in, in, in Europe, and they have the sales and marketing uh, teams, for instance, in the United States, in Silicon Valley or in Boston or, yeah. And some of these startups are breaking out at this point? Are you seeing, you oh, know, they are. really, they are. yeah? We used to be alone. <laughs> we used to be fairly alone in Portugal, and now there's like a, a hive of, uh, of, of great startups, great companies, I mean, the wheel. We just had our first unicorn in, in Portugal, a uh, uh, company that hit one billion uh, billion evaluation. Which and, one is that? It's a company called Farfetch. Okay. And what do they do? Um, they are an e-commerce, specialized e-commerce company. They okay. work as a hub for uh, designer brands. Oh, yes. I know that they, one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, it's a fantastic company run by uh, the entrepreneur was a was a Portuguese. It's run again in that dual model. They have uh, sales and marketing in London and uh, very large teams in in, in Portugal. 
And in these processes in Europe, you start seeing a lot of these uh, multidisciplinary teams across geographies. Um, and, and actually uh, reaching out to Asia, reaching out to the United States. So it's becoming a very, very open uh, network. And I, I, for instance, I'm not in Portugal, by the way, I'm in Atlanta. <laughs> and so, so there is a, a geographic dispersion uh, that's only possible because of the internet and the new communication models where basically these companies are completely spread around. So is the, so, is the volume there to really uh, mitigate the impact of the you know, slow down in Europe? I think in general, in general, Europe, Europe cannot be seen as one country, right? The, the sure. slowdown in some countries and uh, I, I can talk a little bit, um, I, I can speak for instance for Southern Europe in terms of uh, what it has done to, um, to exports for instance, where since the crisis exports have, uh, have increased uh, several fold and so the economy now, instead of being, for instance, in Portugal, instead of being fueled by um, by internal um, internal consumption, is actually fueled by by these fantastic export-ridden uh, companies. Mm -hmm. and, it, and these are companies that are becoming big. Um, so they, they they used to be mid-sized, now they're becoming bigger and bigger. And they uh, they have one trait among all of them, which is high quality products. And so, uh -huh. and quality today, if you want to survive, is what it makes you grow. It's it's the fundamental ingredient for growth. If you don't, uh, it's the minimal thing you have to have. If you don't have quality, typically you get killed in in external markets. So, I think we have a, we have a hive there, definitely. Um, and almost everywhere. Good. Well, on that note, thank you for being here, Paolo. We'll uh, have you back sometime, and uh, good luck with growing our systems. And uh, Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.